Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be starting today in verse uh, 43. The title of my message is Acid Test for Your Heart. Back in the, uh, actually it was 1600s already that uh, nitric acid was discovered. But it was uh, more in the 1800s that uh, that acid began to be used in testing gold, especially in prospecting, to determine whether or not something was actually gold. Now, gold, because of its properties, um, does not respond badly to acid. And so um, metallurgists would put this acid on gold or something that was brought to his office saying, is this gold? He would put that on there, and acid would... Uh, clean out the impurities. It would eat away any of the impurities, but gold would, would remain. Um, gold's very soft metal, but it would not uh, deteriorate uh, under, under acid. Now, if you have jewelry, like my, my gold ring is 14-carat um, gold. Pure gold's 24-carat. 14-carat's um, got alloy. It's got other metals in it, especially for jewelry and, and other things that need more strength. And so if you would put nitric, uh, nitric acid on my ring, um, it would eat away at the alloy, but let the, the gold uh, remain. Well, over time, uh, probably late 1800s, this acid test phrase started to be used, used to speak about anything that could be used to authenticate um, uh, something, one thing or another. And so... Uh, this is the acid test for um, a husband's love, or this is, this is the acid test of whether or not you know the material you've been studying all semester, the final exam or whatever. And so I want to talk this morning about the acid test for your heart, acid test for my heart. Now, in the Bible, the word heart is used, depending on your translation, somewhere between uh, 750 and 950 times. Um, it does not speak about that organ that we're talking, uh, that you see on the graphic uh, that's inside your body that keeps you alive and pumps blood throughout your system. The, when the Bible speaks about heart, it's a word that's synonymous with things like mind, soul, and spirit, speaking about the immaterial part of you. When you and I draw our last breath, we will, um, we, our bodies will begin to rot and deter deteriorate. That's the material part of us. But what remains will go on in presence of the Lord. If I understand the Bible correctly, there's going to be a period of time between when this Bible, uh, Bible, this body goes away and the new body comes. A new body is given when Jesus Christ returns. Everybody who dies gets a new body, both the blessed and the cursed. But there's going to be a period of time where we don't have a body. But this immaterial part of us will continue to exist. And by far the most commonly spoken about uh, uh, way that the immaterial part's spoken about is heart. Now, typically in our culture, when people speak about heart, uh, they speak about something that's very reliable. And so you'll hear people in movies and so forth talk about following your heart as if the heart is true north, as if the heart is reliable and dependable. The Bible says something different about the heart. And if you were to look at Jeremiah 17, 9, you would find this declaration. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. In fact, the, the, even asks the question there, who can grasp the extent of its wickedness? Who can know it? The heart is seen by the Bible as something different 
than many of our, in our culture see. Uh, one of the movies that Betty and I like to watch, I apologize for this, but is Legally Blonde. And at the end of the movie, if you've seen that, um, Elle Woods, the, uh, the main character in the movie, is giving an address at the commencement ceremony of Harvard Law School. And, and every time I see this, I just go, Ugh. she's giving this speech and she says, always be true to your what? Uh, no, actually she doesn't, self, but it's the same idea. Always be true to yourself. And you're like, what does that mean? But there is this understanding, especially with people who have no God as true north, that there's something within them that's true north. And so when we talk this morning about acid test of our heart, we're going to talk about what can tell us the truth about where our heart is. Now, if you were to go to a uh, uh, health campus or LGH or someplace and say, can you give me a blood test or an x-ray or a CAT scan in some way to tell me the condition of my heart, they're going to put you on a treadmill, mill, they're going to give you an EKG, they're going to give you things like that. All they're going to be able to do is, is verify for you the condition of your heart organ. But if you tell them, no, no, I want you to tell me the condition of my, my non-material being, what's the condition of my heart, my soul, my spirit, they're going to look at you with a blank look. They don't have a test for that. Only Jesus can give us some tests for that very crucial evaluation. In Luke chapter 6, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk, uh, listen to Jesus actually and hear what he, he has to say. A couple of acid tests for our heart. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43. <clears throat> I do want to mention a passage. If you're taking notes, you should jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Because this is a place where, <clears throat> excuse me, the Apostle Paul, after criticizing the saints at Corinth, he says this, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, one of the things that I want to encourage us this morning as we kind of march through this passage is that you think about yourself and not the person next to you. You think about yourself and not the person in your family that you scratch your head about spiritually. You think about yourself. Now, it's true that all of us have to do some evaluation in some way about people that maybe that we love spiritually. We see them far from the Lord. We, we're concerned about their faith. Um, as as uh, pastors and church elders, uh, we're responsible to shepherd the flock, and so we have to have some working hypotheses about people. But primarily, when God calls us to uh, examine whether or not somebody is in, in faith, he's calling us to examine ourselves. Kind of keep that in the back of your mind this morning. Luke 6, beginning of 40, um, 43. Jesus speaking, a good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs never gathered from thorn bushes, grapes not picked from bramble bushes. A good person, now he reveals what he's really talking about. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. 
So, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord? It means master, master, when you don't do what I say. I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. Father, I pray that... Uh, you would provide the Holy Spirit as a, um, a guide down a path this morning that on the one hand would guard those among us who are especially sensitive to passages like this and maybe are constantly wrestling with whether or not they're truly born again despite the fact that even those outside of them are looking, looking in at their lives saying, Wow, this certainly, he or she is certainly a believer. But because of their personality, maybe because of their insecure, natural insecurities, um, they're always wrestling with this and always fearful when there's no need to be. I pray that you would protect them this morning. And then I pray for those who have hard hearts and who are unwilling to look at the fruit of their lives and make the call that maybe some others very easily could make, that you would not let them ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit or the impact of the Word of God this morning. And I pray that you would both guard me against um, concerning those who should not be concerned and guard me from neglecting to concern those who should be concerned and that in all things you might receive glory. We pray for the enemy, uh, against the enemy, and for all of his tactics, um, that none of them would be accessible to him this morning. He would not be able to um, uh, raise mischief among us, that rather Jesus would have sway of this room in Jesus' name. We pray, amen. <clears throat> I want to look at this passage in two ways way it's broken up in most of your Bibles as the first um, uh, several verses there, the saying test, and then the remaining verses in the doing test. In other words, that Jesus has given us a couple of ways to analyze what we're saying as well as analyzing what we're doing. And then I'm going to close with talking about why these tests can be reliable for us as we evaluate our own lives. First is the saying test. And Jesus doesn't begin by revealing what he's talking about, about the nature of the human heart. He just starts into these uh, illustrations talking about trees. And his point is that, <clears throat> excuse me, good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit. That's kind of a common law of nature. Uh, he says you can identify a tree by its fruit. So let, let me kind of make a little bit of a left turn from Jesus' illustration rather than talking about the, the quality of uh, trees falling down bad fruit, trees strong and stable, good fruit. You can recognize a tree by its fruit. Let's just think about the kinds of fruit that a tree produces, uh, not in terms of quality, but, but in terms of different kinds of fruit. When um, my children were young, 
Betty used to take uh, our kids to a local orchard to pick cherry trees in the spring. And she would drive down the paths that had been cut into the orchard, and she would drive past pear trees and drive past apple trees to get to the cherry grove and pick cherries. And never once did she get to that place and have one of these trees that last year was producing pears this year decide, I'm going to produce cherries this year. A tree does not have the ability to, to produce a different kind of fruit either with the expectation or the hope of fooling somebody else or of fooling itself. A cherry tree is always going to produce cherries. It might be damaged in some way and it doesn't produce a lot of cherries, but it's going to produce cherries, not pears, not, not apples. And Jesus is saying kind of same thing is true in our lives, that the words that come out of our lives are revealing something about our hearts. And so if we are constantly lying, uh, if we are constantly gossiping about people, we have angry words expressed toward people, boasting, accusations, silent about the gospel, about Christ. Um, or on the flip side, that we are typically more truth-telling, uh, exercising humility, expressing words of peace and kindness, praying for other people, encouraging words. In other words, those two different kinds of categories should lead us to drawing two different kinds of conclusions. Now, for, for me, unfortunately, this was, a, this was a huge problem early in my life. Um, I, people I hung around with and so forth, when I was 13, uh, I developed a, a horrific potty mouth, just crude as could be. And uh, in my teen years, I had made a uh, profession of faith when I was 11, got baptized. In my teen years, I went back and forth. Do I know Christ? Don't I know Christ? And, and I didn't dwell on it a lot, but I would have moments where I would have some sort of emotional experience and I'd think, okay, now I've gotten right with Christ. And yet I watched this over the years. This mouth was just, it was betraying to me. And I remember after I got married, those first five, six years especially, um, at work, I was this Keith at work, and I was this Keith on Sunday, and I was kind of the, a Keith in the middle at home. But the true Keith, I it came out when I was at work, and um, you know the, the the crude language, the dirty stories that I was quick to listen to and pass on and laugh at, as well as just the fury at some people and how I spoke about them and so forth. And I still remember the day that there were five of us <clears throat> foremen in the shop and uh, four of us were professing Christians. And I remember the day in a meeting when the guy who was not a Christian looked around the table there and he said, you know what? He said, the way you guys talk, he said, I'm more of a Christian than any of you. And I remember thinking, ouch. And I knew that he was spot on. And when I was 25, God did something in my life that I thought was a rededication. By about seven years later, when I was starting to study the Bible more and more deeply, I began to realize that was when I came to Christ. Because the fruit, the fruit surfaced. Took me about two years, but that mouth radically changed. Fruit was different because the tree was different. 
Now, the challenge for us is all of us fail. Amen? Can I get a witness about that? We all fail. I don't care whether you're talking about your words or whether you're talking about your attitudes toward people. I don't care whether you're talking about how you treat your wife or your husband, how you handle your kids. I don't care whether you're just the attitudes toward other people. All of us fail. In fact, the Bible never says that you're going to stop sinning when you come to Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all of us are sinning and keep falling short of the glory of God. That's the reason that we need Jesus. And so to some degree, when people hear a message like this, they start to say, well, how can, if I still sin, how can I tell whether I'm bearing the kind of fruit that Jesus is talking about versus the kind of fruit that he's warning us against? Back in the 90s, Eugene Peterson wrote a book. I, I, I've never read the book, but I've loved the title. He talks about a long obedience in the same direction. And so, for example, if you and I were to graph our obedience to Christ um, this week, this coming week, it might look like this, right? But if we took all of the weeks of the year and graphed them on a year's basis, those ups and downs would look more like this. Now the question is, 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 there, is there growing? Is, is there progress? We talk about progressive sanctification. Are you making progress in your obedience with Christ? See, I look back at those years when my mouth was a certain way. There was zero progress. It was worse, if anything. And I, you know, and I could teach a Sunday school on a Sunday morning, um, or, or, or I could handle my kids a particular way on a Friday evening, um, and I could talk around home one way and talk around work another, another way and fool myself into, okay, I'll just measure myself by the, the evenings or the Sundays. And yet, who was I? I, I knew who I was. And so I want us to think about, what, okay, what comes out of our mouths? Not just the kinds of words, but the, the spirit, the, the tone, the, the love or the lack of love for people, the attitudes, the, the complaining, the constant complaining versus the rejoicing, the giving thanks. You understand what I'm saying? Long obedience in the same direction. If you would graph your life in a year's time or maybe three years' time, would you be seeing that God is at work in your life? And that's piece that we're going to touch on at the end, why these tests are and should be reliable. Jesus put it this way in the same sermon he was preaching, not same sermon, but the same uh, content in Matthew. Whatever is in your heart determines what you say. Whatever is in your heart determines what you say. That's a saying test. Now Jesus shifts his focus a little bit in verse 46. This is what I call the doing tests. Test. And he's looking around at people uh, in the crowd, and Jesus hasn't been on the scene very long, but already some people have started to tell their friends and their family members, hey, I'm a follower of this new rabbi. It's been on the scene. He's been preaching down at Capernaum. I don't know if you've heard about all the healings that he's been doing. I'm one of his followers. Some of those people were there that day. Jesus looks around to them and says, why do you call me Lord, Master, and yet you don't do what I say? 
you back there in the fringe of the crowd, why do you say, um, I'm, I'm following you, I'm serving you, but you don't do what I, why is that? And then he goes on to tell these stories, this story about these two builders. Why is it that you keep indulging in sin, that you don't love God's people, that you're disinterested in God's mission, you're more determined to impress people than God? Why is that the case? And then he uses these two builders as examples of phony followers and faithful followers. The phony followers have built a house on the sand. Back when our kids were small, we were camping down in Virginia Beach. I mean, on the beach, actually on the beach. And we had a little 8 by 10 um, tent back then. Uh, our two older children, uh, Cameron wasn't born yet, our two older children were four and six, if I remember correctly. And you know what a tent peg is like. It's about that long, and so we put that down in the sand. Well, on the beach in the sand, you need to get deeper if you're going to have an anchor. And a nasty storm came up that night. And I think Betty's and my weight w was all that kept the tent from blowing to Pennsylvania. Uh, it was nasty. And I think all but two tent pegs were pulled out because they just didn't go down deep enough to the compacted sand, to the wet sand. And really, sand's not a great foundation anyway. You know, if you go camping, you like to have good, rich, uh, solid dirt to put those tent pegs in. And so here's a man who wants to build a house, and he finds a building lot that's it's, it's not solid dirt. It's not stone. It's put, made out of sand. He doesn't maybe have enough money to have both a nice house and a, a good lot. And so he settles for the sandy lot. He builds, the, builds it, uh, his house there. And he puts the bolts down through the bottom plate of the house. And, and he nut, puts the nuts on top of that. And, and then when the storm comes up and he's in a floodplain and the waters rise, Matt house is gone and Jesus contrasts that with a builder who found a he's going to have less money to build his house but he's found a building site with bedrock he drills holes in the bedrock he puts those bolts down through screws them down tightly puts the nut on the uh, on top of the plate and when the storm hits he's sitting by his fire reading a good book floodwaters come up, it's not a problem. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. And the point that Jesus was making with these illustrations was not that you might not be born again, even though you're saying you're following me, you might not be a follower of mine, but it's going to come out who you really are when your life unravels. And some of us know this experientially as long as everything's going well we're like praise God hallelujah glory to God Jesus is my hero and we might even talk like that to people who are going through really really difficult times their their marriage is falling apart they've got a child who's sick and they can't figure out how to help them uh, they've just gotten fired at work and prospects for a job are are not good. And we've talked to them about trusting God and having faith and God's still good for you. And then the wheels start coming off of our lives. 
And all of a sudden, we're like, God, what have you done to us? Don't you care about me? Psalm 46, first verse, talks about God always being ready to help us. He's our, he's our refuge. Like, really? You're not showing up for me. And some of us even know the experience of saying, wash my hands of you because you haven't bailed me out. Jesus made the same point when he told the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, and he talks about different kinds of soil and the seed that the sower throws out, which is the word of God. Is, um, some of it falls on hard, packed down soil. Some of it falls on rocky soil. Some of it falls on uh, soil where there's a lot of weeds and thistles, and some of it falls on good soil. And he says about the seed that falls on rocky soil. He says there are people who believe and embrace and say, hallelujah, glory to God. Initially, But then when persecution, opposition, health problems, people throw them under the bus, people turn against them, financial reversals, you name it. When all this stuff happens, they go, I'm out. I'm done. Where are you? Because there's not a person in here who has not experienced pushback that makes them wonder, is God really a good God? And we've talked before, some of the problem is we have presented far too often a God who's only going to give us good stuff rather than give him himself through thick and thin. It's a, it's a doing test. You know, the most tragic example of someone who professed but did not possess in all of Scripture is a man by the name of Judas. When I was a um, teenager, um, Jesus Christ Superstar was written. So it's a rock, came out as a rock opera. I was a huge fan. I had all the music memorized. I saw it five times by five different production companies. Jesus Christ Superstar presents Judas as a tragic hero who basically didn't want to do what he did, but God kind of forced him to do it, and um, he was simply a pawn. If you read about Judas in the Gospels, you know that Jesus picked him as one of the 12 to follow him, one of the 12 disciples to, to serve with him. Judas, along with Peter, James, and John, went out on mission trips. Uh, Judas, along with Peter, James, and John, and the rest, was part of seeing God heal people, seeing demons being cast out of people. He was part of miracles again and again and again. But there's a, there's a little note in the Scripture that tells us that Judas was a thief. Now, for some bizarre reason, Jesus appointed Judas to take care of the money for the disciples. Now, the disciples all had careers before they became disciples. Some were fishermen, tax collectors. We don't know who most of them were or what they did, but they all had careers. But when Jesus came along, this is going to be an itinerant ministry, guys. We can't have you fishing all the time. We can't have you doing this. And so there were people who gave money to them, just like there are missionaries today. Uh, there are itinerant evangelists today. There are pastors today. 
who are freed up to do the work of the ministry full time and others support them. And that was the way it was with Jesus and his uh, 12 disciples as well. And so they would receive money from people and then pay for their expenses as needed or as the scripture indicates, sometimes that, some of that money they would give to the poor or they would give to people in need. But Judas was a thief. And the Bible says that he routinely helped himself to money from the band's treasury. And then, of course, it got worse. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, they had the Last Supper. They're having a final Passover meal together. And Jesus says that somebody is going to betray him. One of you here. And Judas had covered his tracks so well that none of the other disciples knew who he was talking about. Who might be, um, who might be so low as to do that? And so Jesus said, they asked who it was. And Jesus says, well, it's the guy who's going to dip his bread in the sauce with me. So Judas dips his bread in the sauce, and there's no indication in Scripture that they still know who it's going to be. And then Jesus says to Judas, go out and do quickly what you're going to do. And they think, the other disciples think, that Jesus is maybe telling him to go out and give some money to the poor because he's the treasurer. But as we know, he has already gone to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and said, look, I'll sell him out to you. You give me money, I'll betray Jesus to you. And they agreed. And so Judas comes that night to the grove. Police have come with him. He's already told him, um, I know you don't know what Jesus looks like, but the guy I kiss, that's the guy that you, you want to arrest. And if you remember the story after it, afterwards, Jesus has been uh, indicted. He has been slated for execution. And now Judas has regrets. And so he goes back to the men who paid him. He says, I can't, I can't take this money. Uh, I've betrayed an innocent man. And they say, that's not our problem. And so he leaves the money there. He goes out. And you remember what he does? He takes his life. Now, to my knowledge, except for the rich man in Luke chapter 16, I don't know that we know for sure the destiny of anybody else in Scripture, the ultimate destiny. We can, we can con conject, but we don't know. But Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, when he's praying for himself, his disciples, and us, in John chapter 17, verse 12, he says to the Father, he says, I haven't lost any of these, he's referring to the disciples, that you have given me, except the one doomed for destruction. In fact, Jesus had said earlier, the one who betrays me, it would have been better off for him had he never been born. Now, if he was going to go to be with the Lord after his death, bad things happen and so forth, but his birth would have been worthwhile. He'd have an eternity with the Lord. But better for him if he had never been born. Now we look at Judas and we say, it's tempting to say, he's one example. He's an over-the-top example of someone who was a phony follower of Jesus. Maybe not. Because I, I, 
I think just like I, I was a phony follower of Jesus for a long time, of how easy it is to convince myself that I'm okay. And to look at the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness and say, I'm okay. Let me, let me get to why the tests are reliable. Two key passages we want to end up with. Ezekiel, Old Testament passage, Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God was not happy with the children of Israel. And uh, he's scattering them. Um, things are not going well for them. But in this chapter, he gives them some promises about the future. And this is what he says, and this applies not only to Israel, this applies to what he is going to do in the future with people like you and I. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Some of your translation says a heart of flesh. I'll take out a heart of stone from you, and I'll replace it with a heart of flesh. In other words, stone can't can't be reshaped into something else. Heart of flesh can. He's saying, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. You see, the reason that we can look at the tests that Jesus gave and say they can accurately tell us something about who we really are is because when we come to faith in Christ, we don't just pick a new religion. We don't just embark on a self-improvement effort. Say, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm, I'm going to, my mouth's going to get better and my deeds are going to get better. And I'm going, I'm, no. God says, I change your heart. You see, if, if I, my heart's work was my responsibility, period, there's no reason for me to have confidence that there's great change. But if God's giving me a new heart, God always accomplishes what he sets out to do. And even here, you go to the following verse, and God says, I'm going to do something else. I will put my spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit in you that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Again, God's not just looking to us to try to improve our sake. Look, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can do things that you can't do now, so that you can put away sins that you can't seem to put away now. So let me take you to Galatians 5. I want to wrap up with this. Galatians 5, beginning of verse 19. And this is a passage that I've taken many people to, and I say, okay, start reading in verse 19 and read down through verse 23. There's two kinds of people described in this passage. Which one looks most like you? Beginning of verse 19. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature. So all of us, even believers, have the sinful nature yet, but it has, its power has been crucified in us. It still exists. Sin still pops up. But he's talking about those who are ruled by this. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. It, he could not be more blunt. 
This picture is not the picture of a follower of Jesus. But, verse 22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. I don't like the way the NLT renders this because in the Greek text, it says the Holy Spirit uh, produces this fruit singular. So all nine qualities, I think, are part of the fruit of a believer. More or less, in some areas, understandably, but all of these things should be true to some degree in a believer. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so as we wrap up this morning, again, this is not, these tests are not for us to primarily apply to others, but to apply for ourselves. Where do you fall? I can't imagine anything more um, shocking, horrifying than to breathe your last breath, to be brought into the presence of God and to have him say, as Jesus says in the scriptures to some, depart from me. I don't know who you are. But Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Lord, did we not heal people in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? We taught Sunday school in your name. We went on mission trips in your name. We served with a youth group in your name. We were ushers in your name. We served in the nursery in your name. We distributed Bibles in your name. We gave a tenth of our income in your name. Depart from me. I don't know who you are. May that never be true of any of us. But rather the words of our mouth, the deeds of our hands and our feet might manifestly testify to this is one who is following, pursuing Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, my first prayer would be for the imitators that might be here. And I'm going to pray a bold prayer. Allow them no rest until the fraud becomes clear to them. And then following repentance and faith, they might know the kind of freedom they've never known before. And then again for the sensitive, guard them against undue examination and soul searching that seems to never end for them. May they look at the words of their mouth, the saying test, the look at the deeds of their life and say, no, I'm not perfect. But there is a, there is a, a long obedience in the same direction that gives me soul satisfaction and rest. And I pray, Lord, as the pressure on the American church ratchets up in the future, as I'm convinced it will, that, that we, this fellowship, might not lose half of its fellowship uh, simply because I, I was an easy believer. I was a follower when it was easy, but I'm really not that committed. We might be marked by those who build our houses on solid rock. So when the floods come, we remain. In Jesus' name. Thank you.